Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And there are new developments now in the investigation into the classified documents from President Joe Biden's time as Vice President Joe Biden. We're learning more about his private office, where 10 classified documents were found. Now, more on that in just a moment. We've also got some new CNN reporting on the classified documents found in that office, including a memo from Biden to then-President Barack Obama, two briefing memos preparing Biden for separate phone calls, and one with the British prime minister, the other with the president of the European Council. Now, look, it's unclear how much of this material actually remains sensitive and whether that's really going to be the point in the end. But tonight, we're going to go dig deep into what we know about the special counsel's investigations of President Biden and former President Trump, what the special counsel in each case is looking at, and the key differences between them. And plus, the two stories everybody cannot stop talking about this week. The GOP's George Santos problem and the firestorm over gas stoves. Yes, these are two big stories this week. You see what I did there about the firestorm? It was a moment. It's a Friday night, everyone. Congressman Santos got caught in what seems like a very never-ending series of whoppers about his own resume. And it doesn't stop there, as they say. But wait, there's more. It also includes whoppers about his education even his own family. Now, CNN's own K-File has learned about his work for a company that was later accused of running a Ponzi scheme. Meanwhile, all the brouhaha over gas stoves, it shows no signs of dying down. But there's something these two stories have in common that, well, you might not have noticed. And we're going to thread that particular needle when we come back a little bit later. And we'll tell you about it later on tonight. Lots to talk about tonight with CNN political analyst Alex Burns, former independent counsel Michael Zeldin, and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. I'm glad you're all here with me tonight. Let me begin with you, Michael, because you at one point um, were an independent counsel. And I'm wondering, when you're looking at these scenarios, taking a step back, everyone's focusing on, look, there's two special counsels, but they have different roles because the facts might be different, even though... The headline is the same. How do you see it? Well, Smith steps into the middle of an ongoing investigation, a multifaceted ongoing investigation. Her, who is the Biden newly appointed one, has to set up his own office. He's got to get a skiff. He's got to hire a staff. He's got to figure out what his mandate is. And then he's got a very narrow set of issues to look at. How did these documents get out? Why did they get out? Were they disseminated? Was there criminal intent? And so it's a much more circumscribed issue. Smith's got a big deal on his hand. Biden's guy, her, has a much more narrow focus. In the past, Elliot, you've said when you compare these two, um, I remember the very poignant remark. You said, look, right now, Trump's got a legal problem. Biden's got a PR problem. Do you still feel that way? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, 
what President, former President Trump has uh, is a series of steps going back to August and frankly even before that where he's made the situation worse for himself legally based on his own statements and frankly the conduct of folks around him including his attorneys. That, and that, that's the reason why as we talked about the other day um, the, one of the bases for the search warrant of his property was possible obstruction of justice acts to uh, get in the way of the Justice Department. Right now what folks if you notice if you read between the lines about what people are complaining about with Joe Biden it's, well, they didn't tell the media fast enough. The story switched a little bit, and they weren't totally forthcoming about it. That is public relations. That Now, look, it can spiral into a legal problem if it, if it evidence comes out that the Biden team was either hiding information, was aware of what it was, was deliberately trying to conceal documents. Of course, there's possible criminal liability there. But right now, it's just not clear that it's there. Let me stick there for one second, because of course, arguably, when special counsel is involved from DOJ, you've got a legal problem, no matter how you want to talk about it. There is a problem. Um, But I want to show you the layout of Biden's office again for a second here. And I, I think it's important just to try to take a step back and look at what we're talking about here, of where these documents are supposedly found. This animation actually shows where White House documents were found. Um, I believe this is, at, this is at Biden's office. But I also want to show you, is, do we have the animation of where we found them, not we, I mean the royal we, where they were found at um, Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate as well? Just to think about the contrast here in terms of where they may be. This is Biden's office. I don't know why it's not showing up right now, but we remember... Alex, so here it is, the contrast here where are, and I, I point these two things out because both one have been done, Alex, to look at where we're talking about to figure out, should, does it raise any eyebrows all of a sudden about where these documents are found? There was that indelicate moment yesterday with Biden talking about his Corvette um, and that seeming to intimate, look, my Corvette's in a locked place. If they're safe, the documents may have been. When you look at this and how people are going to process the information and the reporting, What stands out to you about these contrasts? Well, in some ways, I think having them side by side is, uh, in some ways, it's helpful to Joe Biden. In some ways, it's unhelpful to Joe Biden, right? Because on the one hand, it's very clear that the Biden case, based on what we know about it now, is far, far less legally dangerous than the case involving former President Trump. Uh, At the same time, it's a little bit misleading just to consider sort of the, the facts of the Biden situation In contrast to Trump, this isn't an election where one of these guys is going to get indicted and the guy who uh, has the much worse facts uh, of the case is probably going to be that guy. No, like Joe Biden needs to handle this, um, you know, sort of in absolute terms, either stuff was done improperly or illegally or it wasn't. And, you know, look, I'm with, I'm with Elliot here. We're like, based on what we know right now, we're clearly not in a position to say that Joe Biden is in profound legal jeopardy. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, to so the point about public relations and like what we know is that they weren't fully forthcoming with us. And there's some questions about why they didn't uh, answer certain things at certain times. Those are the kinds of gaps that lead you to, in my, in my view, sort of withhold judgment on the seriousness of this because we clearly don't have all the information. I mean, further than withhold judgment. I think people get suspicious yeah. when they feel like their politicians aren't being straight with I them. I mean, just like, right. yeah. just don't jump to the, yeah. yeah, like, let's not just not assume that based on the information we have right now, it's not that serious. Right. Right. So this is us well, talking, Michael, in your position before. I mean, obviously, um, there is room for the honor system in some fields. This is likely not one of them. What will they be looking at in terms of the special counsel's office to assess whether there really was the requisite intent, or really it's the knowing nature. Did he know this was the case? Not just willful, but was it knowing? Right. It's really the who, what, when, where, why. How did they get out? 
Why did they get out? Who had knowledge of them? Was there dissemination? Was there any effort to alter or destroy, as was in the case of Sandy Berger, who was prosecuted under this statute for taking documents? And then when they sort of realized that he had them, he sort of altered them. Or in the case of Alberto Gonzalez, where he had them but didn't disseminate them, they determined that there was no criminal liability because there was no knowledge or intent. Petraeus also prosecuted under the statute. He took them. He gave them to his biographer, who he's having a relationship with, and they determined that that dissemination tipped it over to being criminal. So all of those things is what the special counsel has to look at before he can make a determination whether or not this is inadvertent, non-intentional, not willful, therefore not criminal, or whether it implicates criminal law that requires the national security section and him collectively to make a determination, does this fit in the norms of prosecution? All really good points to compare, because I think people, a lot of people forget. They think this is only beginning with, say, Trump's alleged mishandling and really confirmed mishandling. And they think this is a confined universe of this never happens. Of course, it does go back to the idea of why is this consistently happening? I, I keep going back to the moment. I know you and I have talked about this before, Elliot. Um, if it were a trial and a criminal trial... You'd have problems getting into evidence that which you could not show had a chain of custody that preserved the integrity of the evidence. You have custodians of record. In this instance, it seems like there are just documents unaccounted for until all of a sudden, oops, a daisy, someone finds them. You know, look, it's no accident, we talked about this, that uh, Joe Biden in that very first press conference said, I was surprised to know about these documents and my staff hasn't told me, in effect, what's in them. That's, you know, distancing himself from sort of criminal, you know, the, the level of intent that would be needed to charge him with the crime. What it exposes a bigger problem, though, that a former president of the United States can have documents at his house and not know they're there. Right. And it's uh, and this is far beyond Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It's the simple fact that we need as a nation, as a government to get a better system for tracking classified information that that's not electronic. Right. Like if it's on an electronic device, there are ways to encrypt it and so on. If if papers can migrate out of White Houses and that's a problem. And we've seen it now with two different presidents. Well, the thing that's interesting to me, though, what the Biden case sets as potential precedent, if you will, and I think they're really disconnected cases, is Biden is saying and his staff is saying, look, Joe Biden worked until the last possible minute before the Obama administration ended. And then he left and there was chaos around some of these documents and they inadvertently got there. Trump is saying the same thing. He's saying, I'm working to the very end. I don't think I've lost this election. Then it turns out that I got to leave and they're packing up boxes furiously. And he says, I didn't know they were there. Biden says, I didn't know they were there. And so I think that... The yeah, t- but Trump says, they're mine, I'm keeping them, oh, essentially. I understand that. But at that threshold level, there's similarity. Where they digress mm. is when Trump says, I'm not giving them back, I'm potentially hiding them, and I may be obstructing and your mine. investigation. And he literally said, they are my no, property. I understand right. that, but that. I'm not sure that that raises the criminal responsibility that he has, the obstructing of the investigation is what his criminal but liability knowing, But it's knowing possession of the documents. Once he knows After the fact. that they're... After the fact, right. But even still, you know, it's willfulness or knowledge are going to be relevant to any charging anybody with a crime. And when you're saying, these are mine, this is not the government's property, that's itself evidence of intent. Now, look, I'm not saying you can convict the guy tomorrow of anything, but what what prosecutors do is build cases and somebody you establish intent when somebody says that a document that isn't his is actually his. So right? the, these are the lawyers' conversation <laughs> politically. Yeah. Uh, politically, 
what I mean, the nuance has to be so explicit and also an appetite to actually receive it for the electorate. Sure. And I do think that one of the things that we have seen actually with both Trump and Biden uh, over the years is it's actually pretty hard to change voters' minds uh, about these guys that, you know, we uh, in the media love covering these investigations and we should cover uh, these investigations. But like, I remember, you know, I, I am actually old enough to remember uh, like when Ken Starr was going to bring down the Clinton presidency and Patrick Fitzgerald was going to bring down uh, the Bush White House. And we all remember, uh, you know, the Mueller uh, investigation very, very uh, clearly. And at the end of the day, people have a pretty developed view of the president. Now, what I think personally, uh, as a political reporter, talking to uh, you know, sort of sources who are on the political side of things, the question for Biden is, does this undermine the sort of impression of competence, which already has been through the ringer a bit mm. uh, in the presidency? And also, does it sort of this notion that like he was just working really hard and he lost track of his papers? <laughs> like, does it reinforce the kind of like absent minded grandfather uh, side of the Biden image, which the White House is not super uh, enthusiastic about? Right. But, you know, we have seen uh, some really, really tough hits delivered against both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And at the end of the day, it takes an enormous amount to move the needle yeah. because voters know them both pretty well. Yeah. Very true to think about all of that. And we have more ahead. So stick around. Don't worry. We're going to talk next about two other stories that also got everybody's attention this week. Not so much about the competence, but credibility and trust certainly has come up yet again. George Santos, the congressman out of New York, is still defiant after lie, after lie. We'll add a third one after lie about his background. And there's also the uproar over gas stoves. Now, why am I even connecting these two? Is it a forced analogy? No, there's something really in common. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. Well, two of some of the strangest political dramas of the week now finding their way into new proposed laws. And some, shall we say, well, inventive and maybe descriptive acronyms. You've got two Democrat representatives from New York introducing, and if you look at it, the Santos Act. It stands for the Stopping Another Non-Truthful Office Seeker Act, or for short, see, the Santos Act. Meanwhile, two Republicans taking a cue from the heated controversy over gas stoves this week to introduce their own Stoves Act. Now, what is that short for? Look at it. Stop Trying to Obsessively Vilify Energy Act. Are these political microaggressions we're seeing here? I don't know. That would prevent the banning, of course, this one of gas stoves or ranges. So back with me now, Alex Burns. Your name is not the pun in this conversation. I'm going to put that out to Alex Burns. Also, senior political commentator Ashley Allison and former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide Liam Donovan. So look, um, obviously it's understandable how the Santos discussion continues to concern so many people because it's a sitting member of Congress. What is more surprising for people, though, is the quick pace at which the gas... Um, study that was released back in December and commented on and revealed earlier this week, had even the president of the United States, I would say, arguably responding quicker than he did to the allegations about mishandling classified documents. Tells you the power of what? Special interests, the concerns. What What do you get out of this? To me, it taps into a caricature of the left that the right has, that they're trying to take away all these things. It fits into, you know, oddly, it's a, it's a 
it's an interesting cultural totem, but 40% of America has gas stoves, and the idea that that would be taken away, this is from a, an idle comment by a you know unknown bureaucrat that just has a familiar name in Richard Trumka Jr., um, but it triggered the sorts of, you know, I think... Uh, uh, aggressive cultural wedge issue um, attraction of, of the right to use it and and put Democrats on the defensive. Will it be successful? No, I don't think so. I think that this is going to be an issue that Dems can get ahead of messaging wise and not be, you know, a deciding factor for the 2024 presidential election. I do think, though, why it's happening is that we are in a time when the amount of information people are receiving is coming at them so quickly. And it seems like everything is a crisis. And when you think about the Santos Act and the Stove Act, those are very different Mm -hmm. issues. And yet they sometimes get conflated as though they're the same level of issue. I I have said, I said this on Wednesday, I would prefer a gas stove if I really like to cook. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Is that a big if? She's like, if. If if I I want to cook. Okay. I, I would prefer a gas stove. I think that there are other ways to prevent the ventilation issues around gas stoves. But this uh, George Santos is a liar and needs to be removed from office. These are separate, absolutely, issues. I mean, obviously, somebody is sitting congressman lying. The idea of somebody else who is uh, talking about the um, attack that they perceive on the gas industry, very different. But really, the point also is the way it's perceived. I mean, the idea of, you know, they're coming after, it's always the government against someone, against an industry or you or someone. And there's a positioning that people have of, look, it's really me they're coming after, you they're coming after, I'm in the way. And gas, Santos, as some odd proxy in terms of this argument. What do you say? So, Laura, I'm going to speak uh, some, some truth to the American people here. Oh, uh, wait. Oh, Everyone wait for it. In the, last, okay. in the last couple, how many times over the last five years have you heard people say, I wish life could just get back to normal, right? Mm. That the Trump years were so chaotic. We had a pandemic that killed millions of people. We had global economic collapse. People like, I just want to get back to normal. This is normal. This sort of firestorm about like a preposterous offhand comment, like bear, stuff buried in a report by some federal agency nobody's ever heard of before. It rockets around social media onto, you know, like real media. And all of a sudden, the president of the United States is responding to it. You know, we remember when Barack Obama was going to come and take your light bulb, right? Like that was not that long ago. The idea that we are all that we are now in week, I don't know what it is, three or four of this I mean, not to totally trivialize the importance of the Santos story, it's bad when somebody who's a giant liar is elected to Congress, but he's like the most backbencher in the House of Representatives. The idea that we're fixating on this like screwball character who is clearly uh, way, way out of his depth, that's also a return to normalcy in its own way. Like the idea that that the temperature of politics and the stakes of politics is a little bit lower now at the point where we can spend this much time talking about stuff that just doesn't really matter, certainly on the level of the pandemic or a global recession or a chaotic sort of presidency careening all over the road, that kind of is a return to normal. Something has to fill the vacuum. And and if you don't have a main character, uh, you know, in American politics or or on Twitter or anywhere else, something does fill that gap. And it's going to be the Stoves Act, it's going to be the Santos Act. And I want the, a the new small normal. outrages. <laughs> I want a new normal. I'm sorry. I don't want this normal and I don't want the Trump normal. We we, we deserve something better than I, I hear you like Santos is not the, a major party player, but it, it's an indication of who and how the leadership of that party is responding to behavior, which is fraudulent lying and 
enabling other people in the party, i.e. a former president, to lie and be fraudulent and potentially commit crimes. So I, I hear you. I, like, I would rather talk about gas stoves than COVID any day. But I'm looking. I'm trying to find a new normal. I think that's totally fair. But if you have to choose between like waking up in the morning and like maybe the president has threatened a nuclear war on Twitter oh, versus like maybe a guy lied about working at Goldman Sachs, right? Like one of those is much more sustainable as a lifestyle. Unless working at <laughs> Goldman Sachs, and then he passes some type of bill that collapses our economy. Like there is some type of effect that he still has legislative authority. And I don't think we should just like sweep it under the rug as, you know, not a non-issue. That's all. It all does feel a little bit trivial in light of the fact that the Secretary of the Treasury issued a letter to Congress today saying that we were near nearing our, our federal statutory debt limit. So, so I, I do think there are things that are going to uh, eclipse the, the more trivial items in the near future. And uh, I guess we got to enjoy these while they last. I do wonder if that's the point, though. I mean, you're, when we're talking about a lot of what the um, Trump presidency informed a lot of people about was the idea of, you would see, this idea of the bright, shiny objects that were put up as a distraction from what was in the periphery happening. And many people wondered, hold on, why are you focusing on this over here? It's what you're not looking at over here that's the issue. And sometimes the return to normalcy in politics is getting people triggered, riled up about a particular issue. And my immediate skepticism says, what is it you don't want me to be thinking about? Um, what about the debt ceiling? What about issues surrounding a man who's lied in Congress and still has a seat? What about the concessions that happened, oh, about a week ago? Yeah. Where's all that information? So that, in a way, is the normal. But we have more to talk about there. Don't worry. We'll have plenty. And I know you're all eager to continue the conversation. We're going to move on a little bit, though, everyone, because there is the trivial, maybe politically, but then there's the real important issues in terms of even human life. And if you've seen the reports about a missing Massachusetts mother, the question many are asking and think, looking at prosecutors and law enforcement alike, how do you solve a possible murder without the body? That's what investigators in Massachusetts are trying to do right now. We're going to break down for you what that looks like next. Now, as the search goes on in Massachusetts for a missing mother, Anna Walsh, we're learning that she filed a police report right here in Washington, D.C., nearly a decade ago, claiming that Brian Walsh, who would later become her husband, had threatened to kill her. Now, that case was never prosecuted. Co-workers reported Anna Walsh missing on January 4th. Now, Brian Walsh is in police custody, charged with misleading investigators. And those investigators have found a potential, well, potential evidence in her disappearance, including a bloody knife found in the couple's basement and a hacksaw at a nearby garbage transfer facility. But still no sign of Anna Walsh. I want to bring in chief law enforcement analyst here at CNN and intelligence analyst John Miller and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, who's also a criminal defense attorney. Gentlemen, thank you for being here tonight. This story is so difficult and so sad to think about. This is a mother of three children, her whereabouts unknown. You've got her husband who is being pegged as maybe the prime suspect here. But there's a lot to consider. And the evidence, John, seems to be growing against Brian Walsh, but without a body having been located or her having been located in any manner, I mean, this is very difficult to fully proceed, or is it? Well, I mean, among prosecutors, the the old adage was no body, no murder. Um, You had to have a body to prove that someone was actually killed. 
That has changed a lot over the years. And if you think about some of the cases that we all know, uh, the disappearance of Aton Pates, one of the most famous child kidnappings in history, uh, a suspect convicted without the body ever being recovered. You think of uh, the case of Irene Silverman, the New York socialite who disappeared, um, and the uh, Sante Kimes and her son Kenneth convicted. The body's never been found. Uh, but more to the point of this case, you look at Dr. Robert Bierenbaum case uh, in New York where he murdered his wife, strangled her, and then flew her in an airplane over the ocean, dumped the body. Body's never been found. Um, he's been convicted and at a recent parole hearing finally confessed to doing just that. But most on point, I think the case of John Smith. John Smith murdered his first wife um, in New Jersey, in, in Ohio, murdered his second wife in New Jersey, was on to his third wife when uh, a dedicated FBI agent, Robert Hilland, who never let go of that case, kept stringing together the circumstantial evidence, led to the recovery of one body, not the other. But Smith is in jail in Marion Federal Prison, doesn't see parole until 2029. So we know this can be done. And in this case, with DNA, blood evidence, um, cell phone, uh, you know, easy pass, all the things that string together for circumstantial evidence that didn't exist just a short while ago, um, it's a... It's not what defense lawyers used to have the advantage on, but I'll leave that to Joe. Well, let's bring you in here, Joey, on that. And the, the buzzwords I'm sure you were picking up on circumstantial evidence, circumstantial evidence, and thinking about that and how one is able to even conceptualize a defense. But I do want to know, I mean, this is someone because he was already waiting sentencing, I believe, in a, some kind of an art fraud trial. He had an ankle monitor. I mean, the idea of these monitors, obviously, is to know where one's whereabouts are and with, if they are not where they're supposed to be. That is not beneficial to somebody who, if he, okay, he's a suspect and has the presumption of innocence, of course, but as a suspect, could be easy to track down where he was. Yeah, so, you know, Laura, we have this thing, as you know very well, as a former prosecutor called consciousness of guilt, right? Well, what is consciousness of guilt? It means you do things because you're guilty, and that's the explanation. And so here, John pointed out, right, very appropriately, all the cases throughout the course of time, and there's more, right? This country's been successful at prosecuting people who hide bodies since the 1800s. But when you talk to investigators and you give misleading information with respect to your wife's whereabouts, when you have ankle bracelets and you are, right, pursuant to that federal conviction that he had on probation, and as a result of that, you have to stay home, and you can leave to pick up your children, but you left and your children didn't have school, all of those things kind of circulate to the consciousness of guilt issue. In addition to that, we talk about the circumstantial evidence. You know, Laura, circumstantial evidence is evidence. It's powerful. People don't get credit because they're smart enough to conceal their crimes. So as a result of that, what you do is you string together things that make sense. So what are you going to do in this case? Factually, you're going to examine the specific facts. Why'd you make those misrepresentations? Was it because you killed her? Why'd you say she left the house when the cell phone was pinging to the home? Why did you go to Home Depot and pick up supplies? Why was there blood in the basement, right? Why, why, why? So you've put all of those issues together and all of those issues really seem to suggest that she's missing and she's not going to return because it was at your hands. So, yes, there are challenges, as you know, associated with any prosecution, particularly when you don't have the body. But those are not challenges that cannot be overcome 
predicated upon the evidence, which is not direct, no one saw you, but the circumstances strongly suggest that you did it. You know, John, and just it's difficult, as you all were talking, we were seeing images of Anna Walsh um, and just the contrast of how we're discussing this is striking to so many. And that's really the most significant and unfortunate and sad aspect of this. We're talking about a body. We're looking at a human and a woman and a mother and um, wondering if she will be found. But there's also this record. There's a, rep- a police report we're learning about where... Um, Apparently, she at one point said that he had threatened to kill her. Tell me, as law enforcement, how this is factoring into the investigation. I know if you were prosecuting, if I were prosecuting a case like this, I would look at this as the idea of maybe a prior bad act or thinking about, um, to to Joey's point, as a type of evidence that I would try to be able to get in. But for law enforcement, how would you gauge this? Well, I mean, one of the things we go by is the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So the idea that he made threats allegedly to kill her and that that was reported to police in Washington is uh, what we call a clue. On the other hand, um, and this happens in in the District of Columbia where you were a prosecutor, Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be fighting the idea that it happened in 2014. After that, they had a relationship, they got married, they had three children, And, you know, on the night before she disappears, she writes a letter in red marker, apparently, you know, on a champagne bottle box that says, you know, love, perseverance, and, you know, we'll have a great uh, 2023 because we're still together, even though she knows he's going to prison. So she is messaging, um, if that's her handwriting, uh, that everything's okay and there's a future. It underscores that when you look at a house, a Facebook page, happy family and photos. You never really know what's going on behind the scenes. It's so true, gentlemen, and that's where law yeah. enforcement has to unpack. Joy, you want to say something? Go ahead. Just very quickly, you know, Laura, that defense attorneys, when the appropriate time comes, are going to be moving to preclude, right? right. What do I mean in English? In the event right. that there was some 2014 case, they're going to argue, number one, It's not relevant to the particular circumstances here because it happened in 2014. Number two, it's prejudicial. The fact is that if you admit this in front of a jury, they're not going to want to hear anything else. They're just going to want to convict. So it's an open question as to whether that will see the light of day in terms of ever getting before a jury. So I think that the the authorities are going to rely upon other evidence to piece together that's compelling and admissible before the jury that goes to show that he is the the responsible party in the event, again, that she is indeed dead. And the event this ever goes to a trial if the charges are filed. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to see you both. We are going to follow this story. Also, a story we are following, homes and businesses, I mean, gone. And at least nine people dead across the southeast. Selma, Alabama, absolutely devastated by tornadoes. Look at the images we're seeing here. We're going to go there next. Tonight, residents in Selma, Alabama, are trying to put their lives back together. Just one day after severe storms and at least one powerful tornado slammed the city and others nearby in Alabama and in Georgia. The governors of both declaring states of emergency in the impacted areas to help with cleanup efforts. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who is from Selma and has been in the area since yesterday. Welcome, Congresswoman. I'm glad that you're here because I'm so 
interested in hearing about what has happened down there. You've been there since yesterday, even got an aerial view. What did you see? I have to tell you, Laura, that it was just heart-wrenching. You know, as the person who represents the city of Selma in Congress, uh, it's much more personal for me because Selma is my hometown. And to see the destruction of homes and businesses, um, businesses that I frequented as a child, school, uh, elementary school um, that several of my friends went to. You know, these are my neighbors. These are my church members. These are my teachers. Um, it was just um, really gut-wrenching. Um, but I can tell you this. Uh, the fact is that in the light of day today, we were able to have the governor come uh, and uh, declare a state of emergency. Um, I really do believe we had Senator Katie Britt come as well. Um, you know, it's really about trying to make sure that we have a coordinated effort uh, to bring back um, the city of Selma. And my hope is that we will continue to see these kinds of coordinated efforts on the okay. state and local level so that we can not only, um, you know, uh, rebuild, but we can build back better, if you will. Really important to hear about that coordination. And to that front, I mean, you've got the mayor of Selma noting the tremendous damage in the city and also asking residents to conserve water after power outages actually affected the treatment facilities. How are people coping with this right now? Is, is the water conservation request still out there? No, it's not. Thank God. Uh, but, you know, initially um, when it hit, uh, there were over 10,000 households affected by the power outage. And thank uh, God for um, surrounding communities because they rallied to give us generators uh, in order to make sure that we didn't have uh, that problem with uh, the water pump. Um, I, I just I, it, I just want to thank all of the volunteers, the first responders, our, our neighboring communities that really came and uh, helped us. You know, I can tell you that the city of Selma has seen um, some horrible days. People know the the city of Selma because of the civil rights movement. I can tell you that we are a resilient people, a people who um, will come together in a time of crisis and work together. We will work together to make sure that our city is rebuilt. I, I, I just, you know, my, 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 my my hope is that we can have a coordinated effort, and I know that we can. Um, we did so, um, you know, just in the most recent crisis uh, here in Alabama. Uh, this is a time to unite all Alabamians uh, in the effort to help. Um, the tremendous... Sure. Uh, yeah. Congressman, I wanted to ask you, excuse me, I, I want, I'd like to know what help you need from the federal government as well. What will, be, what will the help come in terms of the coordination? I mean, the state of emergencies haven't been declared. What do you think Selma needs most right now? Well, right now we need help in removing debris and we've had um, surrounding cities and counties offer that help. Um, you know, uh, the the FEMA, I've been in contact with FEMA, the Small Business uh, Administration. I've been in touch with obviously the White House. Um, we really are going to need emergency resources and assistance, and we really need it now. But we know that to get FEMA, we have to um, do a damage assessment, and that's what we're doing right now. We're very much in the mode of recovery, and, um, you know, I, right now, there's a shelter. My my whole high school is now the shelter that the Red Cross is running um, to to offer displaced uh, citizens of Selma and Dallas County uh, mm-hmm. an opportunity to have a cot and a bed. Um, and the whole town is just really rallying behind. But I think that yesterday we were just all it was just gut wrenching to see um, the tremendous widespread uh, damage. 
Congresswoman Sowell, thank you so much for stopping by, especially at a time like this. I certainly hope that Selma gets the hope that they need. And thank you for being there to give us the information as well. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk about, well, in happier times, what would be the chance if you were able to have really all the money in the world, it seems, or over a billion dollars? Well, you might get the chance to find out soon with just a few more minutes until that mega millions drawing from their $1.35 billion or $35 billion jackpot. Stay with us. Friday the 13th, but it might end up being someone's lucky day, maybe even my lucky day. The Mega Millions drawing is in just a few minutes with the jackpot reaching an estimated $1.35 billion, yes, with a B, billion, the second largest in history. Now, the last jackpot, you remember, was won at $502 million bucks back in October. But in just a few minutes, there could very well be another winner. And CNN's Harry Enton is here to break down the odds with us tonight. Harry, I already got my tickets. I actually have three of them here today. Thank you very much. I'm not going to tell you the numbers because I don't want to share with you in case I do win. But it's a lot of money and a lot of people are waiting to see what's happening. We've been getting a lot of jackpots that are this large lately, though. Why is that? Yeah, so look, I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the top Mega Millions jackpots ever won, you'll notice something going on. They're all from 2018 or onward. You know, right now we're at the second largest at $1.35 billion. It was just earlier this past summer, right, where we had a $1.337 billion in July of 2022. So basically, we've been seeing a lot higher jackpots recently. Now, why is that the case? Well, It turns out there was a rule change, a rule change back in 2017 that made it more difficult to win. But of course, when it's more difficult to win and fewer and fewer people are winning, it dries up the jackpot. So what exactly happened? Well, what the Mega Millions folks decided to do was that they decided to take the Mega Ball, which must be matched to win. And that went from one to 15, the potential possibilities, to one to 25. And that took the odds of winning from one in 259 to one in 303 million. One in 303 million, of course, maybe it is my lucky day to quote Clint Eastwood. So here's some (laughs) advice, though. If you want to win and you want to get the largest jackpot possible, right, you don't want to have to share the money. So what what do you want to do if you don't want to share the money? Remember, you must share if if two or more tickets win. So pick a regular ball that goes all the way up in numbers well past 31. Pick a regular ball that's larger than 31. You want your regular balls to be larger than 31. Why? Because when people play, they tend to play dates. And of course, no month has more than 31 days. So pick numbers 32 and up on the regular balls, and that will give you the best shot of not having to share, which of course, Laura, I know you don't want to do, even though it might be with me. (laughs) I'm looking at my tickets right now and going, is everything over that number? Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh Uh-oh, hold on a second. And of course I would share with you because, and I I preface that because in case you do win, I'd like to know what do you, what would you do if you won the lottery? Except of course, you can give me that first answer about how would you and I share this money together? (laughs) You know, I, 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 let, 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 let me tell you, if you won the lotto jackpot, would you share the money with friends and family? I think most Americans, the polling indicates yes. 87% say yes. And I would share it with you. 
Would you quit your current job? 62% of Americans say, yes, they would do that. I would not be in that group. I happen to love playing a little fun with you on a Friday night, right? Talking about lottery. (laughs) Maybe something we'll talk about football next time around. Who knows? But what would I do if I won the uh, lotto jackpot? Selfish answers only here. You know, yes, I give money to charity, blah, blah, blah. A little boring, I might say. But here's what I would do. I would bring triple cereal back. I don't know if you remember that from the 1990s. It was kind of like a Rice Krispies thing that General Mills tried to do. I really love the taste of triple cereals, but it's no longer around. So I would try and bring triple cereal back. But Laura, I have a question. What would you do if you won the Mega Millions jackpot? Well, looking at that magic wall, I would pay you to never use that photograph of me again. I hate that haircut. What is that? Can I pay you a million and a half not to show that again? But seriously, there you go. Take that off, number one. But other than that, I got to tell you, I would do all the, yes, try to solve a lot of problems, but I would just spend it wisely. And mm. I would leave that umbrella for me to do in that respect. But I, I might bring a couple food choices back, or I would just, I tell you, I do love my job, but you might for a couple weeks see just a spinning anchor chair, because that's <laughs> probably where I've headed for a little while. You know, I'll just say, if we do, in fact, if either of us win, maybe we can get better photos or photos of ourselves that we enjoy better. Perhaps that's what we could do, Laura. I mean, we look good in those pictures, Harry. It's it's true. It's just that, you know, there are other ways. Anyway, I've got my tickets. I hope you have yours as well. If I should win on air, I will call you privately, my friend. Thank Thank you very much. much. I appreciate it. And now to someone who's not so lucky tonight, President Biden. He's dealing with a special counsel investigation. So just how should a White House act when dealing with a crisis like this or others? We're going to talk to a former press secretary who ought to know next. Well, the new House Judiciary Chairman, Jim Jordan, announcing he's launching an investigation into the DOJ's actions related to President Biden's handling of classified documents. He's demanding the department turn over a variety of information, including all communications related to yesterday's appointment of special counsel. It's hard to believe this is what's happening one week ago, but just about exactly this time, there was a complete chaos on the House floor. A lawmaker lunging at another lawmaker, and we still didn't know way back then, because the last year was a whole year, last week, a whole year, didn't know if Kevin McCarthy would actually become speaker. What a difference a week's make. And of course, we think about in Washington, D.C., every minute seems to be a new, well, crisis to avert or try to maintain. I want to bring in Michael Schnell, congressional reporter for The Hill, CNN political reporter, commentator Ashley Allison, and Liam Donovan, former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide. Michael, let me bring you into this conversation because, look, we're talking about what happened last week. I bet this week Biden wishes there were maybe a 16th, 17th, 18th round of the speaker votes. It just goes to show you that, you know, it's like the riding high in April, shot down in May. He had the, a, a higher approval rating this week than he had in the past. But this is a crisis now that's starting to spiral What do you make of it? This is a big deal. And again, you mentioned last week the focus was on the speaker's race. It was on the chaos and the disarray within the Republican conference. That got squared away. And then this week we saw Republicans dominate the House floor, bring up a number of bills, some of which passed with bipartisan support, some of which were party line. But Republicans had that success on the floor. So they 
move the waves for them. And now it's Democrats who are in the spotlight as having some troubles with this uh, handling of, of President Biden's documents and it now bleeding over to, as you mentioned, the House Judiciary Committee. This is headed by Jim Jordan, a close ally of President Trump and someone who has made looking into the federal government and looking into those investigations a priority of his in the 118th Congress. So Republicans right now are excited at the prospect of being able to look into this investigation and, and look into this mishandling of documents by Biden, particularly after they had a, a, a pretty a pretty chaotic week last week. So as you mentioned, change uh, quite the difference that a week can make, but it also shifted the tide in terms of how Democrats are doing and how Republicans are doing. A good point, thinking about, well, you might be thinking about salivating at the fact that there's some ammunition here and the idea of how this goes. But I do wonder, because this changing tide that Michael's talking about, will the Biden administration realistically be bogged down by this? Well, they can't help but have to, to deal with it. I think they can hope that there's a new crisis that pushes out of the news. I mean, that's, we're, we're careening from news cycle to news cycle. You're, you're always one news cycle away from your time in the barrel. But I think the hope is that it, it turns the page quickly to the next one. And so I think, you know, mentioned this earlier, but when you have the debt ceiling uh, fight that's looming, I think they like to accelerate that because uh, any time that the other side is in the spotlight and they're disarray, I think that's when you benefit. It reminds me of the 2020 election where it did seem like anyone who was in the news was losing ground. So the goal was, to stand back and let the other side kind of fumble things away. Uh, but the more the spotlight is on the president and his actions and that split screen of, you know, uh, the comparison to former President Trump and the mudding of the waters there, I think, is unhelpful. It is important to think. I mean, obviously, we know that Trump is running for re-election. Um, some say he's walking towards re-election at this point. You're not hearing a whole lot from him at, at this point um, in terms of how he was before. But we haven't yet heard the confirmation other than the intention that Biden intends to run again. Having said that, I wonder, just because the spotlight is there, doesn't necessarily mean that the average voter is leaning into this. Do you think that this is an issue that voters care about to the level that it's being focused on? I think it's one of the issues that voters care about for President Biden and former President Donald Trump. So, I don't think we can compare both of these cases. They have similar variables, but very different, I think, intent and knowledge when we talk about uh, the way we describe how President Trump has handled the situation and how um, President Biden has handled the situation. But we can't ignore the fact that with coming out of a midterm as successful as the Dems were, People probably thought that within the first couple of weeks of the new year that the administration would announce a reelect. And this might have delayed it. Do I think this puts him out of the running? No. But do they want to get ahead of this? And if there are any more documents, let the process play out. Now, here's the one thing that I think could be interesting. Trump's case could get finished before Biden's case. And so if Trump is not indicted or is not convicted, He's in the clear, and then you have this lingering in the news cycle for Joe Biden, and they may both be presidential candidates. That's not good for the Biden campaign or potential Biden campaign. So I think they want to be transparent, continue to, if people are asking questions, tell the truth. But I, I don't think this knocks them out of the running. I do wonder, I mean, I, just the timing of the chronology of things, I wonder which will actually resolve itself yeah. first. It's a, it's a good question, and we'll see. We just have a new special counsel. But, you know, if talking about the distractions, right, and sort of the tennis match of this problem and this problem and the volleying, Michael, what are you hearing on the Hill about what is going to be really the next big fight? You're talking about the debt ceiling, of course. You do have Secretary Yellen saying, 
Uh, we're going to hit it on, I think, the 17th or the next, next Thursday, right? Mm-hmm. It's coming. Um, but some economists are saying, hold on, you're not going to default until maybe June, if that's an issue. That doesn't give a lot of people a lot of confidence. And if you were the credit ower, it would not be okay with the credit card companies. I'll point that out. But what are you hearing, Michael, about this idea of the upcoming fight about the debt ceiling? We're sort of at the start right now of what will likely be a six-month fight, discussion, negotiation, whatever you want to call it, about the debt ceiling. And this was a prime, uh, a prime focus of the speaker's race last week and negotiations between McCarthy detractors and McCarthy allies for that rules package, because a lot of conservatives and those McCarthy holdouts had said, we will not raise the debt ceiling unless that is coupled with a decrease in discretionary spending. So that, of course, frightened some Democrats. We saw uh, the White House press secretary today said that we want to raise the debt ceiling with no conditions. So I think that what really people are realizing on the Hill is that this is not going to be an issue that gets resolved overnight, even likely in a month, a month and a half. This is going to be a long-winded debate and negotiation. As things typically go on Capitol Hill, you don't see too much progress, unfortunately, until you get to the last minute. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of an indication. Uh, Secretary Yellen coming out and saying we're going to be hitting it soon, but then those extraordinary measures come into place. I think this is sort of starting the clock on what will likely be, like I said, a six-month process to do something about about the debt ceiling. I mean, is it in the interest of the parties to have these earnest negotiations quickly? Or is something enticing about the dragging out, the I waiting at the last minute? Well, you can't really get to the end game until it is much closer. That's you know that that level of pressure is just inherent to any must-pass uh, vehicles in Washington D.C. But I think it's important, uh, given how quickly this time moves by, that you do start to the extent there's going to be negotiations. You better get started, or at least I think it's important on the Republican side figure out what you want. I mean, Michael mentioned broadly they want some cuts, but you need to unite behind. 218 votes and what that can get, because otherwise you have no leverage and and you're just kind of standing in the way. It's easy to cast as just intransigence. And I think the more people are emboldened to stick to their side, then you do get into this last minute fight where it's just a game of chicken and you hope that the financial markets don't inflict a lot of pain. And you might be in playing a game of chicken within your own party. And so normally the, the expectation is that it's Republicans against Democrats. Well, circa last week, it was Republicans against Republicans like lunging at each other on the House floor. So if I think to your point, is it better to draw it out or to get it done quickly? It depends on how the story unfolds and it depends on how you tell the story to the American people coming out of a midterm. Republicans promise to deliver for Americans lower prices. Well, if you're going to let us default on our debt and potentially crash our economy, that's an opportunity for Dems to message properly. Well, to quote the Speaker of the House, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. We all remember (laughs) that. Right. It's ingrained in our minds now. Maybe we're having a little bit of shivering for a second about that moment in time. But I want to turn to someone now who knows a lot about handling a White House crisis. Joe Lockhart was named White House press secretary three days before the House voted to impeach Bill Clinton in 1998. I'm glad you're here, Joe. Nice to see you um, and and bring you into the conversation. Because I'm wondering, and a lot of people are looking at these issues, and they're saying, look, the, the classified documents, discussion, the mishandling, the comparisons being drawn, whether they are apropos or not, a lot of focus is on the PR aspect of this. Why didn't voters know sooner? What are the questions being asked? And there's evasive answers resulting. Is it because of DOJ? Is it not? I'm wondering what your assessment is as you take it all in from your prior position, how this is being handled. Well, I think you're right. I think this essentially until we get to the bottom of it is kind of a PR political problem. 
And I think what you see is political communicators' instincts when they see a fire is to try to put it out. And that is often the exact wrong thing because that what that does is give it oxygen. You find out that something that was true on one day may not be true on the next day. What they should do, I think, and I think you're seeing this in the last couple of days, is just turn it over to the Department of Justice, to the special counsel, and say, this is the proper place for it to be uh, looked at, and not spend every day answering whatever the question of the day is. Uh, I think the second thing they need to do, and, and, and should do, is draw contrasts. And I think on two fronts they can do that. They, they are not in a position to criticize Donald Trump any longer, but they can act much differently than Donald Trump did. Donald Trump spent months and months and months trying to stonewall the Department of Justice. This White House should be cooperative at every, at every turn. The second thing, and I think this is just as important, is President Biden can't get bogged down in this. He has to show the American public that he's focused on them. And contrast that with someone like Congressman Jordan, who will, you know, take his jacket off, roll up his sleeves and scream and yell. Uh, and, you know, it's one of the most dependable things, I think, in Washington, which is this crowd of Republicans will always overreact. And if you just let them do that, that'll work to your benefit. It's interesting to think about the way you suggest to navigate. And some some seems a little counterintuitive. You want to almost get ahead of it. It's the phrase people always think about and be as responsive. And that's it's, it's odd to think about the way in which you um, is the appropriate way. But, I mean, you were um, somebody who was a part of the Clinton administration during with the Lewinsky scandal. And so you well know about the idea of how things can continue and spiral and haunt. And I'm also wondering, though, if it's not just the special counsel. You mentioned Congressman Jim Jordan. I mean, you've got... The special counsel, you've got congressional investigations from everything from um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan to conversations around the origins of COVID to um, Hunter Biden and beyond. I wonder, is the advice or is it prudent to fight back at each turn or is it the idea of keeping one's powder dry and choosing your battles? Well, I think it just depends on the issue. Uh, and on this particular issue, I think the, the, the approach should be to be cooperative uh, and to not try to delegitimize uh, the process uh, because it, that draws a very strong contrast with the way Donald Trump has done it. There are other issues that they should fight and delegitimize the, the issue. I mean, it, when you talk about the origins of COVID, um, I, I'm all for Republicans holding a hearing on that and, ha- and having scientists come in and teach them something for a change. Uh, But I think in this particular area, you know, there's vulnerability because uh, these documents exist. They shouldn't be where they were found. Um, But almost every time these things are judged, when you look at the end, not by what happened, not what was in the documents, but how the staff around the president and the president handled it. Uh, And I think if if they handle it in a way that shows transparency and openness, And in some ways, the special counsel is a gift to them because it allows them to shut down a lot of this until a third party uh, uh, rules on it or makes some sort of judgment. Uh, Their judgment now is not particularly credible with Republicans, not particularly credible with reporters. Uh, So what I think they're counting on is to move quickly, be cooperative, and have the special counsel come out and say, you know, there's nothing there. We, we know, though, you know, from 
if you look back as recently as uh, 2016, there was nothing in Hillary Clinton's emails. That story was all about process. Uh, and it contributed in a very strong way to her defeat in Donald Trump's uh, election. So I think there's a lot of lessons in there about not getting drawn into the process stories, letting the Justice Department do their work, and focusing on all of the other agenda items you're trying to get done. Well, we'll see if they're listening to you. It passes prologue. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Well, everyone, listen. I have lottery tickets, and we're going to be checking them because the Mega Millions drawing was just a few moments ago. And the jackpot, an estimated $1.35 billion, yes, with the B, which is the second largest in history for those of you keeping track. So here are the winning numbers. Oh, I can look at it right now. I memorized the first three tickets. Hold on. 30, 43, 45, 46, and 61 with a mega ball of 14. So I'll be here with you for the next 45 minutes tonight. Um, and I'm happy about that. Thank you so much. I'm taking a second look right now at what I've got. And I promise to stay in the chair even if I do win, which I did not. But I'm okay with it. It's all right. It's fine. We're going to turn next to the five Proud Boys on trial now for a seditious conspiracy. Not a laughing matter. And the 12 jurors who are looking at this case have a lot to contend with. You've got prosecutors alleging members of the group were there for some of the most shocking moments on January 6th. We're going to break down that video, a couple of them actually, with an expert on the Proud Boys next. We're getting more details tonight from the seditious conspiracy trial of five Proud Boys. Prosecutors alleging the defendants were among the first wave of rioters to breach the building. The Capitol Police Inspector Tom Lloyd detailing to the jury today how rioters swarmed the Capitol and his officers on January 6th. Recalling the harrowing moments when Officer Eugene Goodman led the crowd, allegedly including one of the defendants, away from the Senate chambers. Telling the jury that, quote, If those doors had been breached, more than likely there would have been gunfire. Joining me now, HuffPost senior editor Andy Campbell. He's also the author of We Are Proud Boys. Andy, I'm so glad that you're here tonight because, look, as I pointed out, some of the most impactful moments people remember of what happened on January 6th include some of the allegations towards against these Proud Boys. And I'm wondering, you know, you're watching this trial saying that there's a lot we still don't really know publicly. What are you looking for here? Well, look, the DOJ has an uphill battle here in in, in getting seditious conspiracy uh, convictions because they have to prove that these guys not only acted out January 6th, but that they had an agreement prior uh, to overthrow the government. And that's not an easy thing to do. But they have a mountain of evidence in this media that they showed today, um, in, in text messages that they have from the Proud Boys that show that the moment Donald Trump got up on the presidential debate stage in 2020 and said, stand back, stand back by Proud Boys, it's that famous moment these guys started gearing up for what they themselves described as civil war. January 6th was their last stand for the president they'd been fighting for in the street for years up until that point. And so certainly uh, they they started amassing 
recruits. They started uh, amassing equipment. And then on January 6th, they stormed the Capitol and they showed that today. Um, but it's, it's interesting that it, it may look like it's a layup uh, to convict a number of these five defendants on seditious conspiracy charges. The defense also has a few aces up its sleeve. One of the like one of the most uh, well, the most impactful thing that the defense for Ethan Nordeen, one of the defendants, came up with. He said that they have testimony from FBI informants who were embedded with the Proud Boys who marched with them toward the Capitol that day and was in uh, their text messages. They say that these informants are going to argue that the Proud Boys did not have a plan previously to storm the Capitol, that this was kind of a herd mentality thing that just cropped up randomly. I don't know how compelling that testimony will be. I don't know how it will it will go to cross-examination, but we'll see. It could be uh, compelling and good for the defense. A really important point. Again, they have to, the prosecution has the burden of proof. And although there was the successful prosecution and conviction on similar charges, including the conspiracy charges for the Oath Keepers, every trial will be separate. And the idea of proving conspiracy is not an easy one. And there's not that big track record of precedent on these matters. But, you know, there also is this idea of looking not at just whether there was a plan, but defense is raising statements as such as, look, it's not us. Look at Trump trying to, you know, extend a 10-foot pole away from themselves do you think that will be successful given especially what even a jury who's likely seen the January 6th committee presentation of evidence as well or their own eyes from being residents of D.C. might reveal? Right. Well, look, I mean, this defense team is huge and it contains a range of characters, some of whom are very serious and some of whom went completely off the rails in court over the past few days. One of them argued, like you said, it wasn't my client, it was Trump. Trump is the one who brought everyone to DC and Trump is the one who sent them on the march toward the Capitol and of course didn't call off the violence when it happened. One of the other defense attorneys argued that January 6th was a six hour uh, uh, you know, bad day for Congress, uh, but it wasn't that big of a deal. He said, if this was an attack, it's the lamest attack I've ever seen. And so uh, some of these attorneys are not making good cases for their clients. Um, but but really, I think, you know, the, for me, going forward, what I'd like to see the, the prosecution do is, it, it, you know, if they have bigger fish to fry here, look at the Proud Boys connections to Trump's inner circle. We know that the leaders here were embedded with Roger Stone, Trump's top confidant. And we know that they were in contact on that day and in text messages with each other. And so the government has a real opportunity here to, to go after uh, not just these five defendants, but learn more through testimony from Proud Boys ready to test, uh, testify against themselves, uh, what the connection was to Trump's yeah. inner circle and, and who knew what going into this. Well, listen, as they might be saying in the courtroom earlier with the oral arguments, with the, the opening statements, the night is young and so is the case. I suspect there's a lot more to get to. And you've written the book, everyone, about the Proud Boys. We are Proud Boys. Andy Campbell, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, tonight, a judge ordered a court deposition of former President Donald Trump to be unsealed this is in the defamation case stemming from a rape accusation made against a former president by former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll. Now, in that deposition, which he fought to keep sealed and which took place under oath, Trump said this of the allegation, quote, but it's a false accusation, never happened, never would, unquote. 
Now, Carol accuses Trump of raping her in a New York department store in the mid-1990s. And in his testimony, Trump also criticized Carol as what he called a quote-unquote nut job and called the allegations a con job and a big, fat hoax. Trump testified, and again, this is under oath, that he did not know Carol, that he never pressured a woman to have sex with him, and that she isn't his type, saying he wasn't trying to insult her, but, quote, because I was offended at this woman's lie, because I was offended that she could make up a story out of cold air. We'll follow this story as well. But up next, NFL playoffs are beginning tomorrow. And the biggest story of the season, DeMar Hamlin's on-field collapse, could have consequences for how that goes. And still ahead, a leopard on the loose. How'd the cat get out of its habitat? The zoo thinks in Dallas it was, quote, intentional. Well, the NFL playoff is set to kick off tomorrow afternoon. And among the teams playing, the Buffalo Bills are going to take on the Miami Dolphins on Sunday at 1 p.m. East. Just shy of two weeks since the Bills' DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest on the field during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, thankfully, Hamlin was discharged from the hospital earlier this week and is now recovering at home. Joining me now, CNN contributor and legendary sports person, Bob Costas. Glad to have you on tonight. You know, um, it's good news about DeMar Hamlin. And people are looking also now to what this means two weeks after the playoffs have now started. They've had to retool a bit to take account for that game having not been played. What happens? Yeah. Well, if it had happened earlier in the season when teams have bye weeks, they probably could have figured out a way to get it in. And some people suggested, okay, have these two teams, the Bengals and the Bills, the teams that were on the field when the Hamlin incident happened, just have them play this week while everybody else sits around and waits. That would be not just inconvenient, but would be competitively difficult for the other teams involved in the playoffs. Plus, it would have compressed the two weeks between the conference championships and the Super Bowl to one week. And the Super Bowl is such an extravaganza now. The logistics, when you don't know which two teams are going to be involved until two weeks before, then it would be just a week before. The hotels, the tickets, all the logistics of that would be almost impossible or at least very daunting to undertake. So what they decided to do was just say, look, two teams, the Bengals and the Bills, played 16 games. Everybody else played 17 Now, had the Ravens beaten the Bengals last weekend, then they would have had to have flipped a coin to see which team was home for their playoff game this weekend. But the Bengals eliminated that problem by beating the Ravens. They will play again in the playoffs this weekend, but it will be in Cincinnati. The more interesting thing was the Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Mm. Chiefs finished 14-3. The Bills finished 13-3. and It wouldn't be fair to either suppose a victory in the game that wasn't played to completion against the Bengals or suppose a loss. But if the Bills had won that game and finished 14-3, and I'm sorry, they would have had the number one seed because they beat Kansas City in a regular season game. So they would have had this weekend off, as the Chiefs now do, and they would have had home field against Kansas City should they meet in the AFC Championship game. The way it is now, if both teams make it to the AFC Championship game, the league has decided that that game will be played at a neutral site, which hasn't been decided 
yet, which seems to be, you know, the most, in a difficult situation, the most reasonable way to resolve it. It's fascinating. Got all that, Laura? I got it all. It's, I mean, there'll be a pop quiz, everyone in the world next up, but you discovered, you explained it very well. What can't be explained, though, and is an issue that people are looking at still, is what's happening in an issue um, involving the Russian anti-doping agency. And remember this story, we've talked about this Mm -hmm. in the past as well. They cleared the Russian figure skater, Kamila Valieva, today, saying that she violated anti-doping rules but bore, quote, no fault or negligence after testing positive for a banned substance back in December of 2021. But now the World Doping Agency is taking that under review. What's happening? What's your take? Well, here's the take. First of all, Rusada, which is uh, the Russian anti-doping agency, if you can really call it anti, they have no credibility in this. Everybody knows that dating back to the days of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union and now Russia have run a sophisticated state-operated doping program. In fact, they did it right under the noses of the IOC when they hosted the Winter Olympics in Sochi, changing out urine samples right there while they were hosting the games. And they'll do it again in some form or fashion because that's just what they do. On the other hand, them saying, this tribunal saying that Vayeva had no fault or negligence of her own probably makes some kind of sense because unfortunately, 15 years old, she's just at the mercy of this sports machine. She may well not have known what was being administered to her. And even if she did, she had no choice to say, no, I'm not going to do this. This is a brutal system. In fact, those who watch the Olympics may remember that when she faltered and she was favored to win the gold medal, when she faltered in the singles and finished fourth, she was she began to cry and she came off the ice. And here was her coach berating her. Why did you quit? Why are you so soft? Why don't you try harder? This is this is not a a warm and fuzzy situation. So I don't think much of the world uh, accepts this as credible. I don't think they want to blame a 15 year old girl for it, but they know what the Russian sports machine is about. So now WADA, the World Anti-Doping Association, will appeal to uh, the court of arbitration for sport, which sort of rules on these international things. And what's at stake would be the gold medal in the team figure skating, which Vaeva helped the Russians win. The Americans, by the way, finished second and took the silver. If they overturned that, then the American team would be awarded the gold. Bob Costas, no one better from NFL and brackets all the way to figure skating. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Have a good night. What's left you of too. it? You too. Thank you. There's a lot left on the West Coast, so enjoy that. Everyone, there's also yeah. more questions than answers tonight, sadly, over the sudden death of Lisa Marie Presley. And we're going to give you an update next. Hollywood and Graceland reacting to the sudden passing of Lisa Marie Presley. She died last night, hours after being hospitalized following an apparent cardiac arrest. In her last public appearance, Lisa Marie attended the Golden Globes on Tuesday night in L.A., where actor Austin Butler won for his portrayal of her late father in the movie Elvis. Here's one of her last interviews where she spoke to Entertainment Tonight on the red carpet. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I just, I just found what I thought about you. No, no, it's perfect. This is a big night. Whoa, what was it? What was it like watching him on stage? 
Lisa, how you doing? I, I hear a lot about you. Thank you. I hear a lot about you. Yeah? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what was it like watching Austin on stage cool. and during this movie and the making of this movie? It was mind-blowing. <laughs> Truly mind-blowing. I really didn't know what, it, what to do with myself after, after I saw it. Yeah. I, I had to take like five days to process it mm -hmm. because it was so incredible and so spot-on. And so authentic that, yeah, I I can't even describe what, what it meant. CNN's international correspondent Kyung Law is here. Kyung, what are you learning about the family's plans ahead? Uh, well, we're just hearing from a family spokesperson who says that Presley's final resting place will be at Graceland. You know, that was her father's historic home. And she will be laid to rest next to her son, Ben, who died by suicide two years ago. And, and that is really being marked and honored by her ex-husband, Nicholas Cage. He released a statement saying, quote, Lisa had the greatest laugh of anyone I ever met. She lit up every room and I am heartbroken. I find some solace believing she is reunited with her son, Benjamin. And we're also hearing from the Michael Jackson estate on uh, Lisa Marie Presley. The uh, deceased pop star, of course, was married to Presley. And in that statement, the estate says, quote, Michael cherished the special bond they enjoyed and was comforted by Lisa Marie's generous love, concern and care during their times together. But Laura, you know, there's still, as you mentioned, a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have autopsy results. We don't have toxicology results. We're not really sure what happens moving forward. Um, but those certainly could potentially answer exactly why a 54-year-old woman would suddenly suffer from cardiac arrest. And in fact, she was just at Graceland just on Sunday, right, giving a speech on what would be her father's 88th birthday. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you're right about that, Laura. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big moment, you know, and it's something that she absolutely marked. She said that she had withdrawn from public view. She, she noted that she didn't want to be so public, but that it was this moment, her father's 88th birthday, had he lived, that brought her out to talk to fans. Take a listen. Thank you. It's been a while. I missed you. And I love you. I keep saying you're the only people that can bring me out of my house. I'm not kidding. And I love you back, and that's why I'm here. So... Today, uh, he would have been 88 years old. Um, it's hard to believe. And Laura, you, you may have seen that in the bug in the corner, in the graphic in the corner, it says Sunday. That was just this past Sunday. So she had two very big public appearances uh, shortly before she suffered from this cardiac arrest. Kyung, thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, the director of the cardiac, cardiac catheterization program at George Washington University Hospital. Dr. Reiner, I'm glad that you're here and to lean on your expertise. There's so many unanswered questions. This was a 54-year-old woman dying of cardiac arrest, which um, I know really is 
the heart stopping. But I'm wondering when you look at a case like this or hearing about it, how should people be thinking about this? Is this the same as a heart attack or is the language distinct for a reason? So first of all, uh, this is obviously a tragedy. A 54-year-old uh, person dying suddenly at home is unexpected and, uh, and, and really sad. Uh, it's important to understand that cardiac arrest, which literally means uh, heart stopping, is not the same as a heart attack. Now, a heart attack is uh, when the heart muscle dies, when the uh, supply of blood to the uh, muscle is interrupted, and that can cause the heart to stop. That can cause a cardiac arrest. But there are many, many uh, possible causes of a cardiac uh, arrest uh, that don't have to do with a primary cardiac uh, problem. And uh, time will tell. If there's an autopsy, and as Kyung said, if there uh, is toxicology, we'll have a sense for whether there was a non-cardiac etiology, a non-cardiac cause for uh, Lisa Marie's uh, death. And I think in an otherwise healthy 54-year-old, non-cardiac causes uh, rise to the top of the list. And in the idea of non-cardiac causes, I mean, there are, I've often learned about the idea of how it can present differently, for example, in a woman than a man. Um, are there things that you hope people are educated about more based on something like this? Well, first of all, you know, we, we've seen, you know, in uh, DeMar Hamlin's uh, happy ending, we've seen the importance of CPR and AED use. And, you know, in, with these high-profile cardiac arrests, I think it's important for the public to understand that many of these lives can be saved if uh, the first responders, even when they're not uh, uh, trained medical professionals, immediately start CPR. So when someone has a cardiac arrest, the clock starts. And within just a few minutes, brain injury will uh, occur. But you can temporize until paramedics come by starting CPR immediately. And, really and if you haven't taken a CPR class, uh, go ahead and do that. Learn how to use an AED. That's a really important point. I hope everyone heeds that advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Ryan. We always lean on your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Well, a cage cut, a leopard on the lamb, a day-long search at the zoo, and investigators say that it looks like it was no accident. And it is our belief that this was an intentional act. And so we have started a criminal investigation. Well, lions and tigers and leopards now. Oh, my. What happened at the Dallas Zoo today? CNN's Ed Lavendera is here. Ed, nice to see you. But I'm hearing that a leopard got loose today. What more do we know? Yes, well, it was a, a clouded leopard that was here at the Dallas Zoo, and it was an incredibly hectic day for the humans on the ground, but by the sounds of it, a rather chill day for Nova, the clouded leopard. Late this afternoon, officials found the clouded leopard uh, and took about 30 minutes to get her uh, uh, back inside where they wanted to, to get her. But this was discovered early this morning here at the Dallas Zoo when uh, the animal uh, caretakers arrived and they noticed that there was a opening in the fenced enclosure where the cl their two clouded leopards live here, their, their habitat. 
and they spent much of the day looking for her. Now, zoo officials had been saying throughout the day that they do not believe that the clouded leopard had ventured too far away. By nature, these are animals that live in the treetops. They don't venture far away from their the habitats that they're accustomed to. So while the humans were scrambling to find her, you almost get the impression that Nova the clouded leopard was just kind of chilling, hanging out in the treetops, watching all the commotion below her, perhaps. But uh, in, investigators here say they believe that that enclosure where that cut in the fence was intentionally done and they've launched a criminal investigation. That's unbelievable. I think what's very scary to think about it, all is well, hopefully that ends well here. But the idea that they're, they had to try to find the leopard, I mean, what did they do? Did they shut down the zoo? Was it even open? Were um, patrons even there? And while this was all happening, I can't imagine as a mom having my kid yanking, you know, at my at my jacket saying, Mom, I think you want to look over here. What were they trying to do? Well, you know, it did set off uh, some alarm bells this morning. The, the zoo was closed all day long. The Dallas SWAT team was called out to here. But initially, mm. that was just the initial call. Uh, zoo officials said, look, this is an animal that is 25 pounds, a little bit bigger than a normal house cat, but not quite as big as, as a bobcat. They initially described uh, the Nova, the, the clouded leopard, as, so, as an animal that is non-dangerous. They were urging people to be careful. And there was some concern that the cat might venture away from the Dallas zoo and some parts of this zoo are surrounded by residential neighborhoods. So there was some concern, but uh, they seem very confident throughout much of the day that uh, Nova the cat was going to stay very close to that enclosure. And it sounds like that's what happened. Man, who would cut a fence like that and endanger the animal and, of course, everyone else in the world in that area as well? And hope they get to the bottom of it. Glad to know that Nova is safe tonight. Thank you so much. You got it. And everyone, thanks for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.